Well, again, what an honor and a privilege it is to be here this morning. I'm grateful for each one of you for being here, and I'm not going to lie to you, this is a hard message. It's going to be a difficult message, and then the kids can head back to class, so you don't have to hear this hard message. <coughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to argue or lie and tell you that, but like Hannah and I, we're like, we're like made out of butter, our hearts are. And so if you put us 10 seconds in the microwave, we just spill and melt all over. So this message of the cross, this crucifixion, I might get weepy. I, I was, didn't know that I would, but sitting back there and worshiping in the sound booth and listening to the music, um, the emotions are filling me, and so I'm going to do my best to get through this, but we are going to, we're going to be talking about the power of the cross. And so, if I were to ask you a question, if I were to ask each of you individually what event influenced your life more than any other, what would it be? It's a rhetorical question, because this is a long message as well, so... I wish I could get all of your individual answers, but we just don't have time. So let me just throw some out. Your marriage, maybe. Having kids. Your parents' divorce. Maybe you yourself are divorced. A career choice. Your decision to move to La Junta. An accident. A poor choice. A stint in prison, maybe. What about your decision to follow Jesus? To call out his name. Repent of your sin and give your life to him and trust him as your Savior and Lord. That would be and should be and should have a great influence on your life. If you were to have done that, then your eternal destiny is set for heaven. You can live your life free from the punishment of your sin even now, even now. What about some of you who may have made a decision not to follow Jesus. That would also have a huge impact on your life. Because those of us who have decided to follow Jesus as our Savior would say that you have made a huge mistake in your life. A huge mistake with eternal consequences. There is only one way to find God and to live in the freedom of knowing him. And today we are looking at a passage that is essential to the gospel message. Ironically, it's a story of a man who suffered on an instrument of torture that provides the hope we can all share and celebrate together. And yes, it is weird that we can celebrate while a man is dying in tremendous agony, bleeding out for us. Our passage this morning is John 19, 12 through 18. This morning we're going to spend a great deal of our time talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're going to look at two main points in our passage and and in those two points, we're also going to look at two specific things that stand out about the crucifixion. The first thing that we're going to look at is the full denial of God 
as king. And the second thing we're going to see is the crucifixion itself. And regarding the crucifixion, we're going to look at two different points of the crucifixion. It's horrifying nature, and secondly, it's beauty. Let's read the passage together this morning, and then we'll pray. John 19, starting in verse 12. From then on, Pilate, taught, or Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and an Aramaic meaning Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, or noon in our time. He said to the Jews, "Behold, your king." And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic, Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, we come before you and thanks, Lord, for this powerful message, this tremendous thing that you have done for us by going to the cross, dying for us, Lord. I pray, Father, that this morning, that as we look at this together, as we read through it and we study it and we, we just look at the horrifying nature of it, Lord, and then also the beauty of the crucifixion. I pray, God, that we would preach this and learn this about your glory, God, how you can be glorified by such an instrument of torture and how we can have forgiveness, Lord, how this leads to restoration in you. I pray, God, that you would speak through me, for I am weak and I need your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as we were learning about the previous passage, Matt pointed out the mistakes that Pilate made in, in verses 1 through 11. But the biggest mistake that I think that Pilate made was assuming that he was in charge of anything. And then Jesus, of course, in verse 11, pointed out that any authority that, Paul, or that Pilate may have had came from God. That Jesus himself is in charge. And we're going to continue to see that as we move this morning into our passage. So starting in verse 12, <coughs> We're taking up these last few minutes, if you will, these last few seconds before Jesus is crucified. And the first thing we read in verse 12 is that the Jews are still trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is guilty of treason against Rome. 
And they mock Pilate by telling him that if he releases Jesus, even though as we have seen that Pilate finds no guilt in him, that if they re he is released back to them, that he is no friend of Caesar. They still make the assertion that Jesus was a pretend king, certainly not their king. Pilate had a seat of judgment brought out, thank you, Rick, and contemplated what to do. But the seat that you can see is not really a seat for Pilate to sit in. He is not really and truly the judge. Of course, we know that Christ is the judge. But he had the authority given to him by Christ that he could have just washed his hands, or could he have? But he didn't. He stood up instead and he said, Behold, your king, mockingly to the Jews. Again, Pilate had no authority to do this, but he was trying to take it on himself, as anyone probably would in his instance. But as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we know that there is a truth. There is a truth, no matter what the world tells us about truth and the fact that it's relative, we know that in fact there is one truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ. And when hearing Pilate tell them, behold the man, the Jews responded back to Pilate to take G Jesus away. Take him away. Crucify him already. As we'll look at in a few minutes, crucifixion is the most painful, the most humiliating death anyone could ever go through. And if it isn't bad enough, it gets worse. So Pilate once again mocks the Jews and he answers back, already knowing full well what they want. He says again, shall I crucify your king? He gives them one more chance. And then, when you really consider what happens here in this next verse, the chief priests, the chief priests, the leaders of the Jews, the one who should know better than anyone else how blasphemous this is that they say, they answer Pilate this way. We have no king but Caesar. Just let that marinate for a while. What if Matt and I came up here and said, we have no savior but our own thoughts, our own ways. Everything that we do saves us. I would hope that you would throw us out of here as fast as that came out of our mouth. Imagine the chief priests of the chosen people of God, chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel, saying out loud in public amongst all the people that are there, we have no king but Caesar. They choose a king who hates them, hates them, wants them all dead and gone over the king who is standing there already bleeding for them, the Messiah that they were looking for, standing there. All of the time that they had spent 
studying the word of God. And they turned their back on him. Their thirst for Jesus' blood overtook them, and they sold themselves to the king who hated them. Think of this. The king of kings, the lord of lords, who parted the Red Sea to help them escape slavery in Egypt, the one who provided manna in the desert, the one who did not let their clothes or their sandals wear out when they were in the desert for 40 years, the one who gave them the promised land, the one who gave them their enemies into their hands, the one who provided food during famines and water during droughts, the one who was faithful time and again while they were so unfaithful to him and they deny him. And this isn't the first time that Israel had rejected God as their king. We look back in 1 Samuel 8, and Israel demanded Samuel the prophet to tell God that he wanted, they wanted God to grant them a king so that they could be like all other nations. And Samuel was very angry, but God told Samuel to listen to the people, and God granted their request with a warning that they would regret their decision. And if we pick this up in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 8, listen to the haunting words that happened. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, this, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his char chariots and to be his his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be performers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to the servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And then this, which is absolutely the worst of all of those things. He said, and in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. They would become slaves and servants again to the king that they pledged their allegiance to, and God would not hear their cries any longer. That's horrifying. You would think you'd learn from that. In fact, they did regret the decision, but now here they are repeating that same mistake, rejection of the king that they had been waiting for, and instead declare their allegiance to Caesar. Imagine Jesus' heart. He had to be, it had to be broken, and yet not surprised. So what does this mean for us? The first thing that comes to my mind is, is I see in America that we're all very patriotic. 
And I am not against patriotism. I am patriotic to the United States as well. I love living here. I would not want to live anywhere else unless God really made that clear to me. I'm loyal to my country. But hear me on this. Please hear me on this. This is important for all of us to remember. The president is not my king. He's not your king. Jesus is our king. He alone. And whether we want to believe it or not, Jesus is the only one who can provide salvation. Only Jesus can protect you. Only Jesus can provide all the things you need to live. Not the federal government. The government may try and tell you what to do. It may provide money for you and insurance for you to buy your allegiance. But let me be very, very clear. They only do so by the sovereign will of God. God is the ruling king over all governments. Read Romans 13, which we don't have time to today. But it confirms this. So I beg you, go to Jesus in prayer and make your needs and requests known to him. Do not put your faith and trust in any government. Put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Do not trade your true king for anything else. Jesus is eternal, and so are his promises. And anything else will pass and wither away. Those other things have only their best interests at heart, not yours. Jesus is the only one who has your interest at heart to his eternal glory. So what happens now? They have rejected their king and pledge their allegiance to Caesar. So what does Pilate do? Verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. And as we talk about the crucifixion, I, wanna, I want us to see two distinct viewpoints of the crucifixion. And the first one is the horrifying, ugly truth of the cross. And the second is the wonderful beauty and reward of the cross. Starting in, looking, starting at the end of verse 16 into 17 and, and 18, it says, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic, Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So the horrifying truth of the cross is in two parts. It's in two parts. All of this is in parts, but it all comes together at the end. The first one is, it's repulsive from a visual standpoint. It is a man being tortured to death by having nails driven into his hands and feet while standing straight up and down on a vertical cross, an implement of pain and suffering, all the while having blood seeping out of his wounds as he hangs there trying to, but never really being able to catch his breath, wanting death to come quickly, but the nature of crucifixion was to prolong the torture and suffering for as long as possible. Sometimes days. 
This has to be the worst form of capital punishment of all time. It was so horrifying that the Romans did not crucify another Roman citizen by this means, no matter their crime. David, prophetically, in Psalm 22, writes about Jesus' agony hundreds of years before crucifixion was even thought of. We're going to look at just a part of that psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to verses 14 and 18. Starting in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, and you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. And then down to 14, he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. God allowed King David some insight, the ability to describe perfectly what King Jesus was going through while he was on the cross. The physical suffering, the emotional suffering, and the sheer agonizing pain. This is a testimony to God's sovereignty that he decided that Jesus would be born and live to die at a time when crucifixion was the preferred form of capital torture for a convicted person who is considered an enemy of the state. God could have sent Jesus during a time where he could have been killed by a guillotine or by hanging or by a firing squad, or by lethal injection, or by the electric chair, or by any other means of capital punishment. But God chose his son Jesus to die in a way that would cause him the most pain, the longest suffering, and the extended humiliation before the throngs of people known to man. Why? Why would God do that? Does God enjoy seeing his own son suffer this way on the cross? Is he some sort of sadist? Why would God choose to put Jesus through this? Why wouldn't one of the other ways that are much quicker have been enough? Wouldn't it have accomplished the same thing? Jesus dying for our sins? Those are all good questions. But first of all, no, God. God is not a sadist. He is not enjoying seeing Jesus suffer as he does on the cross. His heart is breaking. Matthew 27, 45 describes a scene as being covered in darkness all afternoon while Jesus is on the cross for three straight hours in the middle of the day. But here's the most important thing. This was God's plan. Right from the fall, 
Genesis 3.15 says this, and we might be familiar with it, but it's good to remind ourselves. He says, I will put enmity, talking between Satan the serpent and the woman, and Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise your head. I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, from the beginning, Jesus' heel was to be bruised. God knew at that time what that bruising would entail. And as far as I know, as far as I know in the research that I've done, there is no other form of public capital punishment where a person's hands and feet would be pierced through and through and hung vertically and asphyxiated to death like crucifixion. This was the chosen time and the chosen method by the Lord, by his will, and his will alone. The second horrifying thing regarding the cross is what put Jesus there? Why did he have to die on a cross anyway? What nailed him there? Well, it was us. It was our transgressions and our sin. And this is how horrifying our sin really is. This is how much God hates sin. How much he detests it. And the nature of his wrath against it. When we read of Jesus' crucifixion as Christians, it should break our hearts. It should cause a little anguish in ourselves. It should be hard to read and hard to hear. Because if we could have been able to just obey the Lord and keep his law, Jesus would not have had to die. But we couldn't. We go back to the fall of man and to sin in the Garden of Eden. And if we think about it, and I heard this from someone, I, it might have been one of you, I may have read it, honestly, I do not remember where I heard this from, but it makes a great point. That Adam and Eve were put in a perfect environment where death and sin didn't reside, and they still fell into sin. We are so corrupt, we are so totally depraved in our sin that renowned pastor Tim Keller said that when we repent of our sins, we need to repent of our repentance because, because it too is so full of pride and sin. Anyone who tells you or says to themselves that they are good, I'm sorry, no one is good. Noted theologian D.A. Carson wrote, a lot of people think that sin is just breaking a rule. No. What is at stake here is something deeper, bigger, sadder, uglier, more heinous. It is a revolution. It makes me God, and thus de-gods God. Our sin puts us on a throne that we should be so afraid of that we jump off of it as soon as we get on it. We don't belong on the throne. God belongs on the throne. John Calvin wrote this, Let it stand, therefore, as an indubitable truth, which, which no engines can shake, 
that the mind of man is so entirely alienated from the righteousness of God that he cannot conceive, desire, or design anything but what is wicked, distorted, foul, impure, and iniquitous. That his heart is so thoroughly envenomed by sin that it can breathe out nothing but corruption and rottenness. That if some men occasionally make a show of goodness, their mind is ever interwoven with hypocrisy and, defeat, and deceit. Their soul inwardly bound with fetters of wickedness. That is, that is a hard word. That is a hard word. So when you and I read about the cross, when we hear sermons on Jesus' crucifixion, we need to look on it and see our sin on our Savior and Lord. That is our punishment, our death. God's wrath poured out on us through Jesus. It really, Jesus took God's wrath on him. Our King, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, whose stripes that pour out blood that he endures for us. We are the guilty ones, and yet he exchanges himself for us by his choice. Behold the man. The Lord prophesied through Isaiah in the famous Isaiah 53 passage, these things. He said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one in his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then we jump down to verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He took our sins on himself because it was the will of God. Not Pilate, not the chief priests, not even us. This had to be because sin had corrupted his creation. This was his chosen method to wash it in the sanctified blood of Jesus and make it clean. Jesus was exchanged for us to be the payment, the propitiation, the perfect atonement for our sins. Only Jesus was capable of satisfying God's wrath. Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged 
but a tree. It is by the grace of God that Jesus was made a curse in our place. And that is beautiful and humbling at the same time. He willingly took our punishment, our sins, so that God's wrath was poured on on him and not us. Author Stephen Lee writes this, Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, a cup that has accumulated the fury of God against sins of all types, heinous crimes, adultery, careless words, dishonoring thoughts, lies, all of it to be punished by God. The cup that we looked at when Jesus asked the Lord to take it away from him, but he willingly drank of the cup of God's wrath in obedience to his Father. So we can name all the terrible and horrible things that man has done to each other over time. If there is any doubt regarding the depravity of people, let's look at these things. The Holocaust, where millions of Jews were tortured and killed. The reigns of Stalin and Lenin and Mao in Russia and China, where innocent citizens by the millions were killed and tortured. The current action of Putin in Ukraine, his intentional bombing of innocent civilian locations, killing infants and children. Gang violence, abortion, slavery, rape, stealing, pornography, the sex slave industry where young women and young boys are sold to be sex slaves around the world. How depraved is that? School shootings. Our inability to even teach our boys and girls that they're boys and girls. And when you do, you get ostracized and canceled. Drug dealers who continually make money by enslaving people to the thing that makes them money. The redefining of who we are as people. And we could go on and on. And those are just the big ones. Those are not the times when we're cursing someone out on the road because they might be going too slow or cut us off. The point is, is that when you and I say that we are a good person or you hear anyone say that they're a good person, well, you might be a decent person compared to another human being for that moment. But when you compare yourself to a holy God, there is nothing good about you. You are not good. No one is. It is the ugliness of the truth of the God himself endured the worst torture known to man based on all the terrible ways the man has tortured and done evil to each other over the course of time. For an unbeliever, this is something you really need to think about. Because as we've heard, his hatred, God's hatred for sin and his punishment and his wrath, if you deny and reject Christ, his wrath is going to fall on you. If you think you're good, if you think that you can stand before our holy God and say, I'm a good person, my work should let me in, I need to go into heaven, think again. Because only God is good. And he is holy and he is just. And he is the righteous judge. And he will 
righteously and rightfully sentence you to eternal damnation in hell because you rejected his gift. You are guilty. We all are. So to all of us, behold your king. And this leads us to the second point, the wonderful beauty and reward of the cross itself. And you might be asking yourself, how in the world can there be anything beautiful found in what you just described as horrifying and ugly? Well, let us try to define beauty. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm going to be able to define it fully as Zane and I have talked about this time and again, and even today in Sunday school, we had a long discussion about that. But we're going to do our best. We're going to try. So on Friday, Zane and I had coffee at the barista, and he was telling me that he was just trying to define what the beauty of the cross, what the beauty of Christ really looks like. And here's a de definition that he gave me, and I think it's a good place to start. Zane said, beauty is the perfection of God's goodness in his creation, exemplified, that when perceived, produces awe in the beholder. Now, I think that's a pretty good start. That's a pretty good definition. So let me illustrate what I took that to mean, and I'll try to relate that to the beauty found in the cross. Sherry and I are getting ready in eight days to celebrate 35 years of marriage together which is pretty awesome. To me, it's been 35 great years. You'd have to ask her what she thinks. <laughs> she might not think all of them. I'm glad you're laughing because it's been a little heavy. We need a little laughter right now, I, I'm telling you. But look, I want to I say this. When, I, when we got married, you know, we were young. Sherry was young. She was 24. And when I looked at her face, when I looked at her face at that time, she had no lines or wrinkles on her face at all. There was no signs of age. And in my eyes, I saw perfection, a beauty that made me feel awe, knowing that I was going to be married to her for the rest of my life. Well, we've gotten older and older as time goes on, and lines begin to show up on her face and my face. Wrinkles and lines of a life lived began to show up. And she'll come out of the bathroom sometimes and tell me, I'm getting so old, I hate these wrinkles on my face, and complain. And being the good husband, I tell her that I find her still beautiful. And I mean that. More so than when she was young. And I explain it this way. Because when I look at Sherry's face now, I don't focus on the imperfections or the lines or the wrinkles. I see that as a roadmap for our life lived together. Each line represents a mountain we climbed together, a valley we crawled out of, the raising of our children, the years of life lived together, how we grew up together and grew up in the Lord together, and how we serve the Lord together. Those are beautiful. Those lines, I wouldn't trade them for anything. Her face reflects the beauty of our marriage. 
which has been beautiful. And I know that was pretty sappy, but I mean that dearly, and she knows that. I told her I was going to say that, so she wasn't going to be in the room. She was going to be in the nursery, so it made it really hard. I can't look at her right now. <laughs> so that relates, that relates to the crucifixion this way. When we look at the cross as believers, we don't look at the horror of the cross. We don't focus on the ugliness of the reality of what the cross shows us in its most raw form, at least not most of the time. We don't look at the shed blood, the pierced hands and feet, the crowns of thorns and the dying Jesus. We focus on what the promises that God gives regarding the necessity and the outcome of the cross. We look at the cross and we see forgiveness of our sins, redemption, justification, hope, new life, the promise of eternal life with Jesus in heaven when we die, God's love for us, God's love for anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to be saved. We see his wonderful forgiving gift of grace, his mercy, his compassion. We see a new start. Our old life has passed away, and a new life with Jesus has begun. And we are regenerated into new life, freshly forgiven of our sins that put him there. They are gone. As the psalmist said in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, from the east to the west. From my perspective, that's right on a map. Romans 6, 22 through 23, Paul writes this, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that gets that the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul tells us in this section, we will serve someone. Either sin will be our master or God will be our master. And God leads to life and sin leads to death. Rick, you're going to love this. John 3, 16 through 18 draws this out even further. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus came and died on the cross to save his people, to save us. And we define who his people are, those who believe in Jesus as the only true way. By doing so, you are no longer condemned by denying him, you are already condemned to hell. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a joke. This is real, eternal stuff. 
This is the most major decision you will ever make, whether or not you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. John Calvin, again, he writes this, whenever our sins press hard against us, whenever Satan would drive us to despair, we must hold up this shield that God does not want us to be overwhelmed in everlasting destruction, for he has ordained his son to be the salvation of the world. The cross is foolishness to those of you who do not believe in him, but to us, the beauty of the cross of Jesus' crucifixion, it is not found in the aesthetics, but it is in the representation of the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together for us, those whom he has called, those who call upon his name. The Spirit draws us near. Those who see the horrifying truth of their sin being laid on Christ, followed by repentance of their sin, and placing their hope in the forgiveness of their sin because of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. It is simply coming to the end of yourself, realizing that you cannot live the life that you want to live free from your sin, no matter what it is, and knowing that Jesus is the only answer and giving your life to him is the only way. You need his grace that pours out of Jesus' veins while hanging on the cross. His free gift of salvation that you cannot earn, that only he can give. This is his gift to you. Will you accept his gift? Because if you do that, then Romans 8.1, the great promise of Paul, it says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are no longer condemned. You will have life. You have life. Theologian Jerry Bridges said, If we want proof of God's love for us, then we must look first at the cross where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. It is because of these things that we've looked at regarding the cross of Christ that we see it for Jesus' glory. Amazingly enough, Jesus hanging on the cross is glorifying to him. His beautiful cross brings Christ glory. How does that happen? Well, he's glorified because of his obedience to his Father's will for his coming, to save his people from their sins, to perfectly fulfill his purpose on earth. And this is the only way that could have happened because it was the only way the Father ordained it to happen. This is why when Jesus later ascends into heaven, he takes his rightful place next to his Father because it was finished in glory. His beautiful, amazing glory. To end, I want to end on this, another quote. 
Philip Brooks said this, love was compressed for all history in that lonely figure on the cross who said that he could call down angels at any moment on a rescue mission, but he chose not to because of us. At Calvary, God accepted his own unbreakable terms of justice. Behold, your king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we truly thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you for its horrifying nature, and we also thank you for the beauty of our lives restored because of it. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and receive forgiveness of sin. We thank you, God, that you willingly took it upon yourself to satisfy your wrath, and you did not make us go through that for you. We would not have been able to hold up, Lord, for only you are able to do it, Lord. Only you were able to take all the sins, Lord, past, present, and future upon yourself and endure them while hanging, dying on a cross. We would not have been able to do that. So thank you, God, for doing that for us. We praise you and thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if there is someone here this morning who has not ever heard this message or has not ever given their life over to Christ, who never understood what the cross meant, that today would be the day that their life would be changed for eternity. If there is someone here today who has fallen away from Jesus, who needed to hear this message to remind themselves of why they gave their life to Christ, I pray, God, that you would restore their heart for you. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would never forget the message of the cross, that we would be eternally grateful for the work that you have done for us, for your glory, for your love, for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.